30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard When I decided to become a wizard, I knew I needed to manifest the reality with more wizards in it. After all, it's pretty difficult to be a profession of one. If you're the only stand-up comedian, where do you perform? If you're the world's only therapist, how do people know to come to you with their problems? If you're the only pizza shop in the world, where do you buy cardboard boxes that have an Italian chef saying pizza on it? Now, at the time of my ritual, I knew I couldn't be the first person to answer the call of the pointed cap. But when I did a few Google searches, I didn't find any info about non-fictional wizards. If they existed, I didn't know where they were. So I went ahead with my ritual, shifted my reality, and slowly began my transformation into the handsome, white-haired wizard I am today. As the transformation progressed and I became more widely known as a wizard, people started sending me wizard things. Socks, statues, pictures, tweets, memes, articles. If there's wizard content floating around the internet, it washes up on my feed sooner or later. So a couple years into my wizard journey, someone sent along an article, and I finally caught wind of another living wizard, pointed cap, white beard, and all, by the name of Oberon Zell, the Wizard Oz. Oberon has lived a long and interesting life as a guiding figure of modern paganism. Founding the Church of All Worlds, publishing the magazine Green Egg, living in an open marriage with his partner Morning Glory, who was the first person to coin the term polyamory, and establishing the Gray School of Wizardry, a globe-spanning digital Hogwarts that teaches courses on all the various magical arts. Now, when I launched this podcast as a ritual, I had two primary goals. The first was to create a powerful ritual that transcended time and space, manifesting a slightly better future for all of its participants. And y'all, if you're listening to this, that means we're crushing that goal. But the second was to have an excuse to meet and interview as many of my fellow wizards as I possibly could. And friends, let me just say, that goal too is now well underway. Last weekend, I traveled to Salem, Massachusetts to talk with Oberon, wizard to wizard, in the Temple of Stars at New Aeon an excellent little shop run by the lovely Gypsy. Oberon was a gracious, kind, and enchanting host, and I'm so excited to share our conversation with you now in what will be the first of many wizard interviews to come. So, with no further ado, I proudly present the right wonderful Oberon Zell. Oberon Zell, welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. Good to be here. Nice to meet you, Devin. Now, you're going to be so well-equipped for this next question, but what's our magic word? Ah, synchronicity. 
Ooh, brilliant. So one, two, three. Synchronicity. Great. Now, this is a very cool episode that we're getting to do, and this is a very cool meeting, I think, for both of us, because we are both wizards of the most literal variety, pointy hats and all. Pointy hat society, yep. Yeah, the pointy hat society. Um, And I'd love if we could just start by, how did you become a wizard? How did the wizard archetype call to you? (laughs) Well, that's that's a good one. How did I become a wizard? Um, Gosh, and you know, in one sense, I've always have been, you know. When I was a little kid, my first reading was children's versions of the Greek myths, Mm -hmm. and that led me into fairy tales and mythology and science fiction and fantasy, and it just kept on going. And the wizard archetype was a recurrent theme in so many of these stories, you know. And I really related and really identified. Most kids are identified with a young hero, but I always identified with, you know, not with Arthur, but with Merlin, you know. Embrace your inner old man. Exactly, embrace my inner... Well, that's the nice thing about being a wizard, is you get to live a long time. Yeah. And and as I often say when I've done... TV shows and stuff like that. They send me to the makeup department. Mm-hmm. I always say the nice thing about being a wizard is the older you get, the less makeup you need. <laughs> <laughs> so the certain about that, but it came became really formal when I started traveling around uh, with the unicorns back in the early '80s, and we were raising unicorns. And the first ones were born in 1980, and we figured, well, where where can we take them? And the logical place was Renaissance festivals. But when you do a Renaissance festival, you have to have a persona and a costume. And what would be the appropriate one that would fit in? And the one that seemed most logical would be the wizard. So I was a wizard with the unicorn. It made perfect sense. And it just kind of stuck. And being a wizard is one of those things you don't usually claim it yourself. It's other people start referring to you as a wizard. Mm -hmm. And it got to be that way. And eventually it became my whole identity and my whole mission in life. It, it subsumes you. It does. It yeah. does. Well, it's it's a great archetype. I mean, the wizards through all the stories and legends and history are the mentors and the teachers. The modern analog is professor, right? But the ancient analog was philosopher. Mm-hmm. You know, and we have um, and the early scientists were called um, uh, natural philosophers. You know, and philosophy means love of wisdom, and wizardry means wisdom. Yeah. So there's this interconnection that goes all through history. And the, the documentation of the history of wizardry is, is deeper than any because the first books were all written by wizards. They were treatises on astrology and mathematics and all that stuff. And these are all the wizardry stuff. And we have that continuity. Mm-hmm. We have a continuity of grimoires and, and treatises and founding things by people like Pythagoras and, yeah. and so on. It goes. So it's, it's a natural, it just seems like. Yeah, for me, I always thought about it as um, a symbiotic relationship where I was saying, all right, wizard archetype, I would like to to join up with you and I will devote my life to wizardry and that will help spread your ideas in the world and expand and make more wizards and this will be a wonderful thing and it will get me um, onto a lot of fun adventures and encounters with interesting people. Indeed it does. And it does, yeah. Indeed it does. Well, I eventually ended up... uh, starting a school for wizardry, yeah. the Gray School of Wizardry. And so we're training wizards to go out into the world and spread wisdom and magic. The 21st century is going to need a lot of them. It does. It yeah. does. We could certainly use a lot more wisdom and magic in the world. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that I'm very excited to get to, unicorns and the Gray School and all these things that go for it. I feel like listeners are like, unicorns, what are they talking about? <laughs> um, but let's... Continuing in the chronological order, mm-hmm. um, what drew you into paganism, and when did that start for you, and um, what did that look like at that time? Well, again, it goes back to my earliest connections with the 
the world of mythology mm-hmm. and um, and the the customs as I came to learn that the customs I enjoyed around holidays for example were all pagan you know and the more I learned about paganism and gravitated towards it through um, everything from folk songs and legends and stories and and all that stuff it became the natural fit and one time many years later after I'd founded a church and and kind of started on my career somebody it was 1967 somebody said well what kind of a religion is this are you some kind of a Christian sect or one of these new agey things or I mean everybody was doing it back in those days you yeah know? and I said well I guess you could say we're pagans mm-hmm. and that was an historic moment because nobody had ever claimed that we're pagans before in fact I've tried to trace this down I've checked with historians of religion and stuff and there is no record prior to that time of anybody claiming to be pagan there's lots of references to people calling other people pagans. It's more you pointing the finger at somebody else and right. accused you. Yeah. Right. But, um, but it just seemed a natural fit. My idea at that time was all the romantic stuff, you know, the pagan splendor of ancient Greek, the, mm-hmm. the pagan village customs of, uh, that are so wonderful and embedded in all these stories and movies and things. And it just seemed like that was the only identity that made any sense. And so I started... Uh, contacting other people that I felt had a similar path yeah. and I'd say hey um, you guys seem like pagans you know let's all be pagans together and yeah that's really cool and before long we had a movement yeah. that's now estimated to be about five million people around the world identifying themselves as pagans so when did this begin and um, can you speak a little bit more about when how you came to found a, a church well um, I grew up in in the family church which I really liked a lot but I didn't couldn't relate to the mythology because um, while I liked the ceremony and I, and I thought the teachings and philosophy had a lot of good value and I loved the liturgy and ritual and all that stuff, um, the belief structures that they had just didn't make any sense. And I came to a realization at one point that the whole Christian story, the Bible story, was all based on the backstory of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't Jewish, yeah. so it wasn't the story of my people. Yeah. You know, and by that time, I'd already learned enough about other cultures to know about the Greek and Egyptian and Norse and Celtic mythologies. So I said, "Well, that's my back people's. Those are my people's stories." Yeah. You know, so it kind of led me away from the church, um, and I was looking for. Well, I'd like to see a church that was that I could relate to. You know, and then I read um, when I went off to college the first year. Uh, the great mentor I'd had growing up through high school was Robert Heinlein mm-hmm. and his juveniles that he published during the 50s every year as a new one came out. Those were the Harry Potter books of yeah. our era. You know, there's each one was for young people teaching them lessons of what does it mean to be fully human? Yeah. What does that mean? And only science fiction can give you the full dimension of that because you have to see in comparison to what? <laughs> you have to step outside of your own world to do that. And finally, uh, in 1961, the final capper of the entire series appeared, Stranger in a Strange Land, the story of a human born on Mars uh, to a failed landing where everybody was killed except this infant that was you know, still in the womb and raised by Martians. And we imagined, well, what would it be? We'd take chimpanzees from the forest maybe and raise them in, in a home and teach them stuff. Imagine what would happen if they went back to the forest, mm-hmm. back to the jungle. And that was the idea, bring this kid back to Earth 20 years later and see the world through his perspective. And the book is brilliant for that because it brings you right into seeing it through that perspective. And in the process, he creates a church 
called the Church of All Worlds. And the reason for that, as Heinlein said, is that religion is a null area in the law. If you can establish a church and be recognized as such, you can pretty much do anything you want to. <laughs> because churches are exempt from the, by the First Amendment from all kinds of stuff. And so the, the prescription was laid out, how to do it. So I said, well, that's, that seems like a really good idea. So we did. And we incorporated the Church of All Worlds. And then, as I said, somebody asked what kind of a church we were, and I said we're pagans, and it went on from there. Yeah. So that's how that started. <laughs> I love I love pulling that just from the beginning. You were pulling things from the fictional world into the real world. Absolutely. You were crossing that veil, and you were saying, "Well, it's all mythology. It's mythology, all mythology is our foundation. <laughs> we are beings of story. Our only real existence is in the stories. That's our immortality. Is the stories that pass on and continue down through the ages. We." We are still keeping alive people like Heracles and Jason and Arthur and all by the stories that continue to be told. And they get reinterpreted for each new generation, but the core is the same. Yeah. You know, the core of the essence. And it doesn't matter the details. You can dress those up a lot and have new adventures, but but the core of the story persists and it gives a real immortality not only to the individuals who are immortalized but to the entire culture and philosophy and teachings that revolve around these people as exemplars or adventurers or key figures. And, you get, and the wizards are always part of these stories. <laughs> There's always the wise old you know, wizard or, or sometimes the wise old wise woman you know, who mentors the young hero and gives advice and counsel. The hero of the previous story, I always think of it as. Exactly. Like they've already had their own adventure that maybe happened in a different book that you haven't gotten to read. Precisely. And then now they're the one that is equipped to tell the next like generation. The, like that uh, David Carradine movie, uh, The Circle of Iron, which was originally called The Silent Flute, is a brilliant example of that, of a young uh, apprentice who has the old master, takes him along, and he goes along and has all these bizarre, inexplicable things. But by the time the circle is complete, he becomes... The one doing that, yeah. How the cycle goes on, and that is the crucial part of it, and which is why I think it's really interesting that I came to an understanding of the sixty-year cycle of Renaissances. That okay. every sixty years since the Italian Renaissance of the fourteen eighties, there's been a comparable awakening, a comparable Renaissance. The fifteen forties is the age of exploration. The sixteen hundreds is the English Renaissance. The sixteen sixties is the scientific revolution. These are very precise. They're yeah. right there. Uh, the 1720s was the Great Awakening in Europe that inspired Benjamin Franklin. The 1780s was the um, Age of Reason, the French and American Revolutions, all that stuff. The 1840s was the Transcendentalist period. Yeah. The, the turn of the century was the Golden Dawn. Mm -hmm. The 1960s was the Psychedelic 60s and all these movements sprang uh -oh. from. So that means that 2020... You've got it. <laughs> next year begins the next cycle. And those who are the young people inspired coming of age in one cycle then become the old wise ones to be passing this on and teaching the next cycle. And they become the mentors. That is so fascinating because one of the first performances that I did as a wizard, I was telling people in Brooklyn, I said... There's going to be an occult revival in 2020. There's going to be a big flower in the way that we've talked about the 1960s. There's going to be an era of this. And right now, we're sort of in the pseudo-beat era, you know? Right, right, it's the exactly. things like... Exactly. So enjoy these moments. Yep. Enjoy, you know, when you go out and you're at an art gallery, 
think about, you know, what is the documentary going to look like about this moment? And how are people going to reflect back and say, I can't believe these three people were at the same party together. That's so cool. And, you know, live your life as you're creating a myth and enjoy that and look forward to it. Absolutely. I'm glad that our predictions are right on track. Exactly. It's interesting that you came to this independently, too. Yeah. Because it really is the case, you know. And we are, this new coming one already has a name that's been given widely. It's uh, The Awakening. The Awakening, okay. The Awakening. So that will be the way that this coming one is to be understood and known and memorized, memor- memorialized. Either. Yeah. That's the name, the name of my website, this person is awake. So well, I'm, there you go. I'm ready for it. This is your wake-up call. Yeah. You know? Don't hit snooze, everybody. Let's go right. for it. Exactly. Exactly. So with the Church of All Worlds, can you tell me a little bit more about what the, uh, the rites and rituals were of that group and how that developed? Sure. Well, the central rite and ritual of the Church of All Worlds is sharing water mm-hmm. in recognition of the unity of all life. Um, we used to think that Earth was unique, being a water planet, you know, but all life shares this water that connects us so that we are all a part of and we're all connected through it. We're quantum entangled through the water of the primordial seas that still courses through the veins of every living creature. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. We still have the same ratio of Exactly. Water. Yeah. It's still the same stuff. It's really neat. There's been a lot of stuff about water, but the neatest thing is we've now come to understand that water is universal mm-hmm. throughout the cosmos, and the water on Earth has come here from space. Mm-hmm. It didn't originate on Earth. And all water is one substance, one water, and it's the most ancient compound. It's older than the galaxies, older wow. than the stars. It's primal and it's all universal it all mixed together you get water from anywhere anytime any place it all just flows together into a common bowl yeah. with no distinction and it is the medium of life you know and it's on air it's everywhere there's the oceans of mars are frozen beneath the sands there's water beneath the craters of the moon they found water on mercury in the north pole you know mm-hmm. the rings of saturn are made of water of ice you know, um, the moons of the outer worlds are covered with frozen oceans. Mm-hmm. I mean, so where there's water, there's very likely to be life. Yeah. And we have life on Earth that um, uh, is not terrestrial in its nature. Tardigrades being the prime example of that, the coolest critter on the planet, because these guys are designed to live in space. Yeah. You know, they can live in absolute zero temperature and total vacuum and hard radiation doesn't phase them. These are guys that are designed to live on comets and travel from world to world. Tough, tough dudes. Yeah, they really are. They're pretty damn tough, you know. And they took a bunch of them out on the space station and put them outside to see how they do. No problem, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's wild. Yeah. So as this all developed, as um, you, you know, this was the, I guess, the when did the Church of All Worlds start? Well, it was officially started with our first water sharing, which was April 7th, 1962. Okay. And we became incorporated. We filed for incorporation in 1967, became public, and received our incorporation on March 4th, 1968, yeah. and started publishing Green Egg Magazine and getting active in the world from there. And how was, you know, being involved with this in 62 and then the the whole blossoming of the, the hippie revolution is now right. it's been right. um, nostalgized and lionized by the, the boomer generation. Oh, um, yeah. How was it watching, you know, I think modern occultists have a weird feeling of they see it getting more and more popular, but there's a little bit of defensiveness. How was it for you at that time seeing more and more people suddenly um, getting turned on to these ideas? Well, the idea was that we were trying to turn people on. Yeah. I mean, it was the whole concept. I mean, Tim Leary's had his, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out kind of a thing. But we were more like turn on, tune in, and drop in. Yeah. You know, it was kind of where it drop was. Drop by. Drop by. <laughs> drop on by, right. 
And um, so it was kind of exciting to see these ideas spread, you know, getting attention, getting interviews, getting uh, on, you know, TV and radio and, and stuff like that, because we're really trying to make a difference to change the world. It's that whole thing, you know, we got to make the world a better place. That's yeah. the whole idea of it all. So uh, insofar as that happens, as these ideas spread and we see uh, surveys and numbers that indicate that these ideas are spreading and growing in the world, I think that's very gratifying mm -hmm. myself. I don't really worry about the popularization thing because um, many people will only go so far into the, down the rabbit hole. You know, yeah. you, you know, those people who want to dive all the way are the shamans. Yeah. They're willing to go the full distance, you know, clear down into the other world. But it's, it's still okay just a few people just to know that the rabbit hole's there mm -hmm. and to have it be part of their landscape, you know, is, is a good thing. Yeah. They don't all have to dive in. You know? Now, I'm going to ask you a question that gets asked about, that I get asked all the time. Okay. Um, what about psychedelics? What about them? How did those um, play a role in the, the magic that you were working in the communities that you were involved in? Well, psychedelics are always very important for us. Um, it's a shamanic thing. You know? mm -hmm. This is what shamanism is all about, really. Um, eating the magic mushrooms or whatever it happens to be. Terence McKenna had a theory that early humans became fully conscious by following the herds of cattle and reindeer and eating the magic mushrooms that grew out of the shit, you know? Yeah, the stone date. Right, exactly. And I think that there's a great deal of validity to that. These are substances that are key into receptors in our brains that evolved to be able to receive these particular um, psychosymbiotic uh, chemicals, mm -hmm. you know, we're designed for that, and these are designed for us. It's almost like there's a cosmic hand at work here, yeah. you know, making these whole things work. Match made in heaven. Keys. So, um, and the shamans traditionally have been the people who felt at home in entering these other spaces of consciousness, other realms. Mm -hmm. So, I think that it's an important part of the whole journey, but not for everybody. You yeah. know, there's some people who, who just should probably never do it, but you know, you, you know. You got to try it, you know, or not as you wish. It's a very personal free will thing there. Yeah, I sometimes wonder how much we've let over the barrier into our world. Uh, the people that built Silicon Valley were the people that were taking acid. Oh, yeah. And now we have, you know, the, one of the biggest, richest corporations in the world is Apple, the, the right. fruit of knowledge. Right. And From all these acid heads, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think know. of the impact in movies and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I think of the, the uh, synthesis when Walt Disney and uh, Salvador Dali and... Um, um, uh, well? Uh, let me see. Uh, Doors of Perception. Uh, oh, Huxley. Huxley. Yeah. All got together and, and started experimenting with things like this. And yeah. the, the most immediate result was the movie Fantasia, mm -hmm. which was a breakthrough movie of consciousness. Classic I mean, of wizard cinema. Absolutely. Totally. I mean, it even had the, that little Wizard's Apprentice episode yeah. of The yeah. Sorcerer's Apprentice. But beyond that, um, the uh, I think one of the most important things that happened to me in the pastoral scene in that, you know, you've got all the Greek gods and things right. and the bacchanalia, you know, all done to the music of the rites of spring. And then at the very end of it, Nyx draws the veil of night across the sky, just like this. Mm -hmm. You know, she just spreads her cloak and the stars come in. And then, you know, you see the, the, the crescent moon, just like we saw last night, yeah. you know, in the sky. And you zoom in and there's Diana drawing her bow. Mm -hmm. And she releases an arrow and a shooting star soars across the sky. And that arrow lodged itself in my heart from that moment. <laughs> it was like, yes, that's my religion and that's my goddess. Then I had a great revelation of Gaia, of the Earth Goddess, 
that that changed my life forever and shaped the entire community after that. So, can you tell me about that? Well, sure. Um, it was in 1970, and it was um, I, after my first acid trip was in 1970. I waited a long time because I wanted to get the perfect conditions, but it, the conditions were a total eclipse of the sun, which I thought was a pretty good time. Yeah. So you know that was my first trip, and I liked it a lot. This was amazing. Really cool because all of the stories and mythology, everything fit into this new viewpoint, this yeah. new paradigm. And a few, and then I, that summer, I read uh, the White Goddess and the Great Cosmic Mother and a lot of stuff about not just gods and goddesses, which I'd been familiar with all my life, but the concept of the Great Cosmic Female Divinity, mm-hmm. you know, of the universe, you know, kind of a thing. And um, on Labor Day weekend of that year, nineteen seventy. I was uh, given some pretty good stuff and laid out under the stars with a, with my companion of the time yeah. and looked up at the stars and she had grown up in the city and didn't really know the stars, but I did and I knew the constellations. So we had just started that time uh, with our first lessons in witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So I was still learning the beginnings of witchcraft and the first lessons, the teachings that Deborah gave were about how to see auras. So we're practicing all the time. We're looking at everything and trying and practicing getting in the right f- focus to see the auras. So there we were laying on our back on a trampoline looking up at the stars and I was showing her where the, how to connect the dots to see the pictures and the patterns and the sizes. And as you drew a line across, you could see the aura left a trail so that the lines were being preserved there. And I was thinking, that's really cool. And I, I kind of held up my hands as I was doing that and I started playing with my fingers and, you know, and, and watching the... The, the auras pull apart, you know, mm-hmm. and was doing the, you know, live long and prosper and Star Trek <laughs> thing, you know, and moving my fingers like that. And I got this sense of how a cell divides. But when the cells divide, you know, they pull apart and separate out and eventually they attenuate until they come apart. But it's still the same stuff. It's just, it's like taking a pitcher of water and pouring it into two cups. It's mm-hmm. not like it's become separate, yeah. you know. And I had this flash that all of the cells in my body were created that way. They're all the same stuff, all the same water, the same DNA. The it same used to be protein. one cell. Exactly. And so with this insight, I suddenly was catapulted back down through the river of DNA and protoplasm to the very beginning of the very first cell that began from which all life emerged. And I realized that it was exactly the same as happens in our body, that we start with a single cell and we become the trillions of cells of an adult, but we still remain a single being. Mm-hmm. And as I was getting this vision, I, I traced it all the way back to that first cell and that primal ocean at the Cambrian explosion half a billion years ago when all of the stuff proliferated. And I rose up above the earth and looked down upon the planet and watched life spreading out across it and realizing it was just one single creature, mm-hmm. that what we thought of as evolution was just embryology mm-hmm. on a planetary scale. And as I, as I looked down upon this, you know, uh, she opened her eyes and looked up at me, and she smiled and she said, now you know me. And I wept and I said, I made the great pledge of my life, I shall ever serve you. And it took decades before I was able to turn that vision into a three-dimensional figurine, but this particular image that I call the Millennial Gaia has thousands upon thousands of these have been made and circulated throughout the world. It's hugely popular. All kinds of places, and that's the vision right there that all of life is one single biological organism. 
And Mother Earth is, is the thing, and it's universal. Everybody knows about Mother Earth. You can go to any place anywhere, and they know about that. You know, they have names, you know, like, like Earth or Hertha or Gaia or Pachamama or whatever you have. But everybody knows the Great Mother. So that was, the, that was a big one, and I spread that vision through the community, and it became sort of cemented as a foundational theology for the entire emerging pagan community that united everybody together. We're all children of the same mother. And more than that, we are all an integral part, like cells in the great body. We are all cells in this greater being. And when you have any living organism, part of that, there's two things that are universal living organisms. One is the um, mandate to reproduce, mm -hmm. and the other is the emergence of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And all living organisms, so the very tiniest, have consciousness and, and this drive to reproduce. So we have the emergence of planetary consciousness, the, the awakening, which I think has is, is been with us all along, but we've tapped it or not tapped it at various times in history, or been, you know, like the cells in our body, how much do they know what's going on in our thoughts? You right. Know? But, um, but there are times when that may happen, you know. Mm -hmm. And then there is um, the idea of sending the spores of Earth out into space to reproduce Gaia on new barren worlds, you know, and spread life everywhere. Yeah, if you can watch Earth on fast forward, you exactly. would just see it spread and get green, and then these creatures, and then now we're at a point where we've wrapped the entire globe exactly. in strings of light. Ready to go. Yeah, so the, the moment where you blow the dandelion and exactly. the spores go flying. The dandelion, exactly. Are flying Mother Nature's silver seeds, like Neil Young sang in the <laughs> after the gold rush. Yep. So yeah, that's that's the whole story, really. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's beautiful. I, I, I love that, and I think that's um, a wonderful appraisal of the process that we're in now. But I feel like there's a bit of tumult that we're experiencing as um, things are changing so rapidly at this point in the process. And obviously, there's environmental devastation on the one hand, and then there's kind of the um, the strangeness of uh, everything becoming digital and. You know, oh, yeah. This is a moment that we're recording in multiple ways. Like, if, if, yes. if you don't record it, did it happen? For future generations, no. You know, the tribes yeah. that didn't leave written records and chose right. to die in places where their bones didn't get preserved True. are tribes that we don't know about. The people that right. wrote down, they become the rock stars because we've got their hieroglyphs and cave paintings and things to, to have reference. to pass the stories. If the mm -hmm. stories don't go, then they didn't happen. You know. Yeah. But the stories do go, and they get told, and we've lost much of history because the stories have been lost. Libraries have been burned and destroyed, many intentionally. Artifacts have been deliberately destroyed by succeeding cultures. Or they you know, they build their church on top of the pagan exactly. holy ground. Exactly. You know, if you want to find an old pagan temple anywhere in Europe, just dig under a church. You know, and there it is. There's the remains. Did you see the documentary about um, the Rushnishis in Oregon, the wild, wild country? Yes, I saw that, right. I thought the most mind-blowing and horrified and sad thing about it was at the very end where they had resisted having this group there for so, so long. Right. And then after they'd gotten rid of them, what did they do with it? They opened up a Center for Young Life, the conservative Christian organization. Yes. And that's their summer camp now. And I was like, you continue the same pattern of we're going to pave over the the other organisms that are trying to exist, the, the mutations they do. They do that we indeed. don't want. Although there's an interesting thing with the rise of Christianity is they didn't really have a lot of original stuff going on. They <laughs> just took over the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had not really subverted the old religion. It basically just moved in and you know built a new temple down the road. You know? yeah. So all of the 
uh, the rise of Christianity in the West, uh, primarily the Catholic Church, of course, until, until Luther, um, assimilated all the old holidays, the customs, the sacred places, you know, the sites and all of the stuff because they didn't have anything else to go with. Yeah. So all the paganism, the stories, the legends, the customs, all of it is embedded in the successor religion that tried to eradicate it. And, you know, they killed people, but they could not eradicate the old, the deeper stuff because those mysteries are deeper. And the people, you don't really die, you just could be get, um, you know, the the vessel gets broken, but the water flows back to the ocean, you know. Yeah. Kind of a stuff. So, so we recur. We're like crabgrass. We just keep coming back, yeah. time after time. So, I, I think that's kind of neat that way. That that um, if you know how to dig and excavate, you can find the pieces you need to do to reconstruct it. I think the recreation of modern paganism is a lot like paleontology. Mm -hmm. You know, you dig up a few bones and you try to assemble them, and you you fill in a few blanks. You know, with because you know that that yeah. has to go there, and then you try to put on the muscles and the flesh and and the, the skin, you know. And then you get to the point of eventually of what what color was it even, you know? Yeah. Or that's what sparks the, the the contemporary imagination. Exactly. The ideas that we have of dinosaurs that we've grown up on. Exactly. Some of those are are fictions because Absolutely. some of those are the wrong bones piled up in the wrong right. way. Yep. Or now we think. You know, the Brontosaurus was a composite. It's a composite, exactly. And I think that's that's one of the things that I try and be clear about is I think it's beautiful to go excavate these old traditions, but I try and make sure that people aren't throwing away the things that we have nowadays and saying, oh, the secret is, is must be in some book on a mountain in Tibet somewhere, and that's got the truth and everything. And I yes. say, you know what? It's a story. And at a certain point, when you retell the story, you find new elements, and then that becomes a different story. Exactly. And so maybe there's a, a bottleneck where someone took ideas of witchcraft and added a lot of their own imagination and created a new version of witchcraft. Right. And that's okay. It's fine. And that's, that's amazing. And that's spread out and that's exactly. changed lives. And we're sitting here in Salem, exactly. one of the hubs of that. And, I mean, talk about the reversal of, of what we were saying a moment ago. You know, this is a place where people were persecuted for those beliefs. And now we've paved over that with shop selling crystals and how to be a witch supplies. You can well, learn. And the irony is that 300 years ago, people were persecuted not for actually having these beliefs, mm -hmm. but for being suspected, suspected of having these beliefs. Right. But the very mm -hmm. act of doing that kind the, of set in motion an idea of people going, well, what were the real things? Yeah. Who were the real witches? You right. Know? If this wasn't them, but who were they talking about? Yeah. You know, what were they afraid of and all that stuff? And today, now this this place that was famous for this persecution, not even of real witches, but for people accused mm -hmm. of witchcraft, has become uh, a mecca and a safe haven yeah. for that. Where the uh, just yesterday, Gypsy was given some beautiful documentation from the state, you know, honoring her for her work in establishing witchcraft. Wow! You know, here in the modern times, and, and and it was beautiful stuff, beautiful writing, beautiful things that are said about that. So. Um, this, I feel there's a there's an evolution going on here. But before any new system has to emerge, the old system has to somehow, you know, be gotten rid of. And in the yeah. systems analysis, you have a destabilization of an order before the next phase occurs. Mm -hmm. Everything falls apart. The example I like to use is the is the chrysalis. Mm -hmm. You know, when a caterpillar goes into a chrysalis to become a butterfly, it doesn't just grow wings and legs. That's not what happens at all. The caterpillar dissolves into a pool of goo, and then the DNA 
completely recreates an entire new organism from scratch mm -hmm. that emerges. And I think we're in that phase. We just we just tipped over the the little clicking of the talk into the new age of Aquarius just yeah. a few years ago mm -hmm. in 2012. And so now we're beginning the new journey into a new eon, yeah. which we've been talking about forever. I mean, it's the gooey twenties. Yeah, right. The gooey twenties. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So this is a very exciting time to be around. It's a great time for wizards and magic because Absolutely. we can shape anything from here on. It's wide open. Yeah, I think that that's the, the we've steadily been seeing this idea of a single objective reality, which was always an illusion. Right. Um, but that's sort of decaying, and now we're in this world which, um, in ways that are both positive and negative, everything is getting so much more mutable. Even oh, yeah. you know, with the ways that computers um, respond, like you could do a Google search for something, and because of your search history, you get shown one set of results, and I could do the same search and get shown something entirely different. So that if we're fact-checking each other, we now no longer have the same sources to to base that off of. And that's... we got to watch out for those alternative facts thing. Though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, that gets kind of uh, weird sometimes. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, get too led astray into politics, right. but um, the Scott Adams, the guy that created Dilbert, yes. um, was doing writing at the beginning of the 2016 election before, I think it was even, you know, in 2015, mm -hmm. when Trump was first emerging as a candidate, describing him as a wizard. Now, I would not describe him as a wizard that I'm a fan of, and there's plenty of evil wizards in fiction that yeah, we... We, could, we call them sorcerers. I don't like yeah. to think of them as wizards in the yeah. same way, you know? Um, but I think he was quick to grasp that the rules of the game had changed mm -hmm. and no one was going to have the time to listen to the nerds that were fact-checking and playground insults and using language to sort of shape this reality and have easily memorable chants and that kind of thing um, was a source of power. I think it's a very dark power. I think it's leading you know, in a, in a direction that's not that great. But I True. think as wizards, that makes our role even more important of how do we... Um, shine light into that dark corner and um, show that there's a lot more to, to be done in the world well, of fantasy. And it does. Well, that's where we get to the third rule of wizardry, which is uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's where some of these people miss it. You know, they miss that entirely. Yeah, Uncle Ben's law. Yeah, exactly. Uncle Ben's law. Exactly. And again, uh, we're drawing. You know, in that particular storyline, the wizard is Aunt May. Yeah. You know. She's the wise woman who is the mentor for the young hero. Mm -hmm. you know, and I, I love to see how the myths and stories are playing out in movies and comic books. These are like the core of this emerging mythology. Everybody knows about it with Star Wars, for example, because mm -hmm. it was made a big deal. But for example, the recent movie Aquaman yeah. is totally mythic in all those ways. It ties together Atlantis mythology with the... You know, the emergence of the sacred king who's reluctant to pull the sword out of the stone and take the throne, you know, and yeah. the, the legend of the mermaid and the, the lighthouse keeper, you know, and all this stuff, all woven together in a blockbuster movie with great imagery and special effects and, and storytelling that is profound. So I, I love this, the way the stories are are being told and retold and, and continue shaping new generations. I mean, that is the story that I think is, you know, 
Think these things come up in fiction before we were able to articulate them right. in a different in a different right. way. But they draw but on ancient sources. The know. Avengers is a story about superhumans and posthumans right. trying to save the world from destruction. I think exactly. that's definitely going to be the story of the twenty first century. Absolutely, and yeah. of course, Doctor Strange is somebody we can we wizards can relate to. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, that was a great yeah, day yeah, when yeah. that came out. Yeah, yeah that was great. great <laughs> stuff, you know, so it's it's all it's all going, and it's a very exciting time to be. Um, called to this profession, as it were. Well, that's so. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Joseph Campbell, and he talks about the uh, the resonance symbol. And so you have symbols that kind of get calcified and old, and they're not updated. And so um, the story of Jesus Christ, people made the decision of you have to tie it to the time that it was in, and you can't change the facts because it's holy scripture. So we haven't been able to reinvent that story right. in the same ways that you can reinvent Spider-Man again and again and, and again, again right. and just keep it fresh. And I think the wizard is a very vibrant, very alive archetype where Harry Potter was an explosion. That was right. so many people oh, yeah. saying that resonated with me. And now that's a generation where instead of screaming at a Beatles concert, it was waiting outside of a bookstore to get the new Harry Potter release. Exactly. And, and the core mythos there is really interesting <clears throat> because the, the one of the young hero who's a changeling Mm -hmm. is a crucial part of it. It had to do with the mutant mythology that we had in the 1970s with the X-Men, mm -hmm. you know, and the vision of uh, that is recurrent in old mythology like Cinderella and Snow White that you're uh, of this of the hero who's actually a uh, descendant of significant parentage but not known because mm -hmm. they're reduced to a humble state somehow as an orphan, yeah. you know, and coming into their own and who are they really, you know, that kind of stuff is a part of it. But the most interesting thing of the Harry Potter mythos is that other stories of magic realms take place somewhere else. Yes. You know, through the magic of wardrobe or somewhere over the rainbow or Middle another Earth. galaxy far, far away or an ancient lost land, you know. But the Harry Potter mythos puts it in the present world. And it says that, well, somewhere around that corner or down through those woods or down that path not taken through this someplace or other. There are magical people who are doing magical things and gathering and having a whole life. Well, that's true. That's true. And it's us. <laughs> you know, and the thing that struck us, uh, Morning Glory and I, when we first saw the first Harry Potter movie, it was a big deal because we were invited to come and talk to a Jewish shul because they were going to was, the movie was just premiering, you see, mm -hmm. and they wanted to have a real witch and wizard come and talk to them so they'd have some idea what to expect because they were worried it was going to be, I don't know, satanic or something like that. It was a big thing going on. And so we came down and we talked to them and all, and we had a nice conversation. We were all dressed up in our full regalia, and then afterwards they had bought tickets and reserved the entire balcony of the theater. So we showed up to that in our pointy hats and all, and there was all these other little pointy hats that were about that tall, you know, mm -hmm. all around. And we sat up in the balcony, we looked over this huge crowd, and we saw the movie, and we realized that this is going to be profound, because a whole generation of young people are now going to want to go looking for the real thing. Yep. Because this movie has said that it's right out there, it's just, mm -hmm. you just have to find it. But it's not somewhere you can't get to, you can get there. And so, but none of the magical systems or orders or organizations were admitting kids. Mm -hmm. They all had, you had to be at least 18 to get in. So, well, then what are they going to do? What are these kids going to do? Where are they going to go? And um, so we figured, well, we can play a part in this. We have, this is an assignment, yeah. you know. I've always lived my life by the assignment. I get these phone calls, you know, this is the goddess speaking. Yeah. <laughs> your, your next assignment, should you choose to accept it? 
You know, and the secret of that is you can't just hang up and say no thanks, you know, because yeah. then the phone booth explodes and your show gets canceled. Right. So there's no fun in that. You know, you got to go for it. You go, okay, you know, where do I go? What do I do? So we took it as an assignment that we create statues and figurines. And the first thing you do when you set your foot on the magical path is you make an altar. That's the beginning. So we said, well, we have to make altar figures for kids. So I made a set of altar figures for kids, which are here at the store. We saw. Okay. And um, we took them to a trade show to, for, to promote them. And I met a, a, an old friend who just published her latest book. And she wanted to introduce me to her publisher to get them to commission me to write a book. And, and I met the publisher and she said, said well, if you were going to write a book for us, what would it be about? And I said, well, how about I'd like to write a Boy Scout handbook of wizardry? And I said, that sounds like a great idea. You know, the book that would be your basic textbook for Hogwarts if there was a real school of wizardry. So that was became the um, grimoire for the Apprentice Wizard, my first book. And then I had to found a school to teach it because, again, there was no system that admitted kids. So we had to create a school that let kids in. So that became the Gray School of Wizardry, which is now 15 years old and thriving. Yeah, really thriving and doing great. So one thing leads to another, to another, to another, to another, and you just have to keep accepting those assignments, mm -hmm. you know, and then going for them. And enjoy the path in between those. Exactly, because you can maybe tell where the next stage goes, but you can't necessarily see the stage beyond that, you know? Yeah, I've, I've always tried to embrace this idea of interesting results, like whether I'm doing something creative or I'm going out in the world dressed as a wizard, there's going to be times when I ride the train and no one talks to me. Everyone, I was actually on a train the other day, and it was very quiet. It was like a Tuesday night, and there was someone that was sitting across from me reading Harry Potter. Really? And I was like, there you are. Wow. You know, I'm not going to interrupt you. I want this to be your choice. Like, you are on the train Reading sitting with the wizard. You can look up and you can come over and talk to me. And she got off the train. She didn't say a word. Really? And I was like, all right, that's fine. But then you never know. At that next stop, the doors are going to open and someone could walk on who's going to say, here's your quest. Here's the next thing. Well, how did you get to do this? How did you come to the idea of becoming a subway wizard and, and, and going out there in the pointy hat and being there for people? So I, uh, it, it's funny because there's, there, you know, there was a moment where I declared myself to be a wizard. Mm -hmm. So I had moved to New York and I had done a bunch of other random things in my 20s. And finally I was at a moment where I realized I need to figure out something that I can do for a while. Something that I'm not going to get bored with and I can really dig in and you know, see what happens five years into it, ten years into it, fifteen years into it and enjoy that journey. Mm -hmm. And in the course of this year I called it my egg year where I was like I'm going to figure it out this year. I don't know what it is yet but I'm going to explore and I'm going to experiment and it's going to come together. And over the course of that year the message became very clear that I was going to declare myself to be a wizard and see what would happen with that. Mm -hmm. Now at that point I looked nothing like I look today. I had brown hair, I was clean shaven. I've been interested in magic for a long time and practicing. Not quite in the closet but it wasn't the thing that I led with. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did a magic ritual to connect with the wizard archetype, to connect with the version of myself in an alternate universe who was more wizardly than I was. I figured that person would be well equipped to hear my call and merge our realities and oh, then yeah. I knew that I would then enter a world where more wizards would exist and it would seem like they'd always been there but I knew that was because I was shifting from my old reality to a new one. Mm -hmm. um, but then the, the funny thing was I did that ritual November 30th, which is your birthday. Yes, it is. And then a month later, 
Uh, my knee swelled up, which is this rare condition that I've dealt with, and it's you know caused me all kinds of problems throughout my 20s. And I finally got to go see a doctor who was a specialist, and he said that instead of surgery, that they would be able to put me on a medication, and that medication would turn all of my hair white. Wow. So I thought, wow. all right, that, you know, I called the universe up and the universe said, I'm, I'm with it. Let's go. Let's do this. There you go. That's and so crazy. then it's wow. been, um, I've tried, you know, for a while I actually consciously was trying not to go find the Boy Scout manual for wizards. I said, I want to figure out what's inside of me and how I'm expressing this. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I wanted to connect with more people. I wanted to have those hours of just talking with people and I didn't want to try and charge people money. I didn't want to make it into, you know, yet another high-priced therapist or life coach or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And I had this opportunity in New York City of riding trains with the most diverse group of human beings that's possibly existed on this planet. You know, a single subway car could have people from 40 different countries on it. And I thought that um, it would be a fun experience to walk onto a train and suddenly there's a wizard and what do you do? And you have this opportunity to have this magical adventure in just three stops. And as I played around with that idea, um, on the subway we have these MTA posters that tell you, you know, don't eat food on the subway or don't uh, trim your nails or don't spread your knees and take up too much space. And I made my own poster that says, talk to the wizard. Because no one meets a wizard by accident. And I put that up over an advertisement. No one asked me if I wanted to see that advertisement, so I think it's fine for me to put up my own thing. Sure. And I sit, and then the whole idea is that it's invitational. So there's a lot of times on the subway that you hear people get up and they say, excuse me, here's my sob story, can I have some money? And there are people in very unfortunate situations, and everyone's been taught and learned how to kind of just ignore that and tune that out. And I wanted to have something that was just weird and interesting, and if you want to engage with me, we're going to have an adventure. And if you want to just take a photo and then shuffle off, that's your, that's your business too. And it continues to be something that opens doors. And that's how, you know, we've got two documentary filmmakers here right now. And I met um, the lovely Zoe over here just walking around on the street. And her friend said, we need to go talk to that wizard. And she followed up. So I think it's the, the call to adventure knocks on a lot of doors and not, not everyone answers it. That's a great story. That's wonderful. I love it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to um, learn a little bit more about the Gray School that okay. you mentioned. Sure. And um, you said it started 15 years ago. You pulled together quite a, a crew for the council. Yes. And um, what does it look like today? Where do people go and how many students and what's going on? With well, them? right at the moment, we have about 300 students. Um, we've had students in 50 countries around the world. Uh, come and go, go through the school and so on. It's a program that you can go through yeah, from beginning to end? Through. It's a seven-level program. It's mm-hmm. an apprenticeship program, basically. So it's seven levels. Uh, there's about 500 classes available wow. in 16 departments. They're all color-coded with yeah. like things like green for herbalism and red for alchemy and brown for beast mastery, you yeah. know, uh, black for dark arts. I mean, it's 16 different departments, and they're all... You know, really amazing, and they're all taught by people who are incredible authorities, experts in the field. Many of them have written the books that are the crucial books in the fields, and these are part of the textbooks as well at the school. And um, we have uh, a, a 
auxiliary campus in Second Life, a virtual campus that's got this beautiful castle and we have classrooms and, and things like stone circles and campfire things and all kinds of cool events there. And um, as, as well as the regular just classes that you can just take online. Yeah. Um, we have translation programs for students who don't speak English so they can you know, follow the program. We've got a lot of students in China because we had the Chinese History Channel came out and did a story about us and it oh, cool. picked up a lot there. So yeah. we got a lot of Chinese students. And um, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm just delighted with it altogether. Amazing yeah. students. I still teach a few classes mm-hmm. myself. I'm, uh, uh, I'm the dean of the Department of Wizardry, mm-hmm. you know, which is color is indigo. And uh, But each department, like I said, had its own color. And we have deans and we have four um, houses uh, for youth and lodges for adults that are uh, t- elemental houses are tied to your sun signs. So if you know whatever your sun sign is, you're in that particular house or lodge. And um, so they have activities and they have prefects and we have awards and we have all kinds of stuff goes on there. It's, it's amazingly am- amazing. Well, you know, we have uh, forums that people can talk to each other about stuff. We have uh, done summer camps you know, where people can go to some park or something like that, or and we'll have a, a week long or a ten day camp out experience. Cool. Locally. So that's in, that's in the real world that you'll yeah, you'll bring in, everyone in in, in in the physical world. As oh, world. how fun! Yeah. Oh, it's 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 really neat. I'm delighted. I know that people have been doing because um, you know, being a wizard, you get sent all the wizard related things. Like right, right. you know, every little comic strip of the wizard makes its way to me. Oh yeah. Um, but I I've talked to a few people. Where they're because of the Harry Potter fandom, there's now these LARP communities that there will are, go and they right. will recreate Hogwarts for a weekend, right. and you will go and set up in some castle in Europe. And I've seen some of that. Yeah, pretty impressive, actually. It's Very cool. Really cool stuff. Yeah. I, I did see the one that you're referring to in the castle that 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 they had all these games and stuff all set up for it. And all. Yeah. But that's that's of course is fantasy and play stuff, and we're mm. not that. We're mm. the real thing, and people do find it difficult to. You realize that we're not that, that we're right. not some kind of a game, you know, that we're the real thing. But that's okay, because the idea was, well, supposing that that Hogwarts was a real school teaching real magic, what would mm-hmm. that have to look like? Because, again, in my life I've drawn from mythology so often to say, well, so supposing this f- fantasy idea tra- could translate into the real world, what would it look like? What would it have to be? And that's what I think the core of magic has always been to me, is that if there's two worlds, there's a world of ideas and there's a world of physical matter, magic is the gateway that you're passing things back and forth through. So I'm going to move around some physical statues on an altar because I want to go into an imaginary world and have that experience and have that vision and have those ideas. Exactly. And then I'm going to have those ideas and experiences or put my, my message in there and then hope that my real world will unfold in a similar way. Exactly. That's the whole idea of what the altar is. It's a little miniature universe that you yeah. create what you want to happen in there. That's exactly how it works. Yeah, I've, I've even described it as, as like, you know, imagine, you know, you've got your little dolls and you're playing like a little kid with exactly. the action figures and you're saying, oh, hello, I'm here for the job. And the other person is like, you're hired. And you're like, this is the play of what I would like to have happen as I go about my job hunt or try and find relationships or whatever it is that people do magic for. Exactly, exactly. That's how it works. That's the whole thing with an altar and stuff in there is to create... Um, um, uh, it, it's the microcosm, macrocosm idea, yeah. as above, so below. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it's a great truth. Great truths, uh, small truths, the opposite is false. Great yeah. truth, the opposite is also true. Yeah. <laughs> so as above, so below, the opposite is also true. Yeah. And there are many of those. And um, that's... 
Well, that's where we, that's where we exist. We exist in that in between space. You know, the wizard, the shaman, is a walker between the worlds. Mm-hmm. Is comfortable whatever world to walk into, and those gateways and portals are places that we know how to open and find our way through. And we can hold them open for others, but we don't make them walk through. You know, we don't even kick them through. We right. just hold the door open and say, "Here, you know." You can walk into this one if you want to. That's why I tell people all the time that you know the wizard is not the hero, and the wizard is not going to do the work for you. No, the wizard will give you the hint. The wizard will give you the clue, but it's up to you to go off and do that. And right. so when I do one-on-one wizard sessions with people, I do one because I think it's your story, and you get this moment where you meet a wizard, and are you going to take something that we've done in the session and the ritual that we figured out together, and then go off of that, or are you going to? Go back to the habit that you said that you wanted to leave, but you didn't really want to leave, and that's your choice. Right. Well, you you grant wishes too yeah. to an extent. I remember one time somebody came up and we got talking about um, I don't know smoking cigarettes or something. Yeah. And I said, Well, I don't smoke cigarettes. And they said, Well, well, you're lucky. I said, Well, no, I deliberately chose not to smoke yeah. cigarettes. It wasn't a matter of luck, you yeah. know. So, and then they'll say, Well, I wish I could quit smoking. And I said, Ah, well, you you're in luck. You've met a wizard, yeah. and I can do magic. Whoopity whoopity! Yeah. Your wish is granted. You can quit smoking. Mm-hmm. That's what you wished for. Yeah, and send them off. <laughs> and that's so. Um, I can't remember the title of it. There's but this book about quitting smoking that everyone has said is amazing yeah. because it just walks you through how to change that mindset. Mm. And I. Um, did the same thing for myself very early on when I was 18 I smoked cigarettes and I remember there was a moment where I was trying to quit and I wasn't going that well and then I had taken a little bit of mushrooms and I saw it clear as day that oh trying to quit is useless There's, you can't try to quit you have to become a non-smoker and you just yeah. have to step over into that world where you are now a non-smoker right. and then fake it till you make it. And I said, every time that I see someone smoke a cigarette, I'm going to go <clears throat> and just, you know, retch a little bit of my, Good. you know, trigger that reaction and tell myself, even if part of me is saying, oh, I really want that cigarette, I'm going to say another part that says, nope, if I smoked a cigarette, I would throw up. And I'm just going to continue doing that until that becomes true. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways that we can bring our fantasies into active use. Do or not do. There is no try. Yeah. Another great wizard. <laughs> right. Another yeah. great wizard. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd, I'd love to make sure that we cover um, the unicorn story because I think okay. this is fascinating. So All right. what were the origins of this? How did you get interested in unicorns and how did that lead to creating your own? Well, when Morning Glory and I first met in 1973 at Spring at Fall Equinox, it was cosmic. It was just this amazing, incredible cosmic connection, as it were. Here we are in a place we call the Cosmic Connection. Mm-hmm. And um, we just came to a realization that we had lived parallel lives and parallel attitudes. And, and we'd read all the same books and loved all the same music and, and made references and puns and stuff to all the same stories and everything. And, and we were just, we had the same interests on a bunch of stuff. We were actually reading the same novel at the time we met, which was another roadside attraction, you know. Um, and um, one of those interests that we had was um, mythological creatures. I mean, we love things like dragons and unicorns and griffins and, and sea serpents and Loch Ness Monster and all that stuff. And, and, um, and we had this passion wanting to know the truth behind it. Where do these stories originate? What is the foundation? Because there's one thing about the story about something or other, you know, like Bugs Bunny and Briar Rabbit are stories about rabbits. Mm-hmm. But... You know, that makes you wonder, well, let's, what are rabbits? Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's find out about what rabbits really are. What is the basis of the stories? Yeah. You know? And so um, it was a constant conversation we had. 
And when the movie, um, with the book first, which we read, and then the movie, The Last Unicorn, came out, we were intrigued by the uh, an idea that was in it of the uh, carnival of magical beasties that you know, the character in the, in the story has. Uh, and she calls it Creatures of Night Brought to Light, you know. Mommy Fortuna's Creatures of Night Brought to Light. So we thought, well, that would be a great name for a book. What a great title that would be for a book that was about the true stories of all these mythological critters. So we, th we, we said, well, that would be a fun project for us to do. And so we started researching. And this is long before the internet or Google or anything. Now it's easy to do this. But in those days, you got information from libraries. And, and shortly right after that time, um, you know, we got an old school bus and fixed it up into an RV and, and started traveling around the country. We lived for five years on a school bus and traveled around and we taught at uh, schools and, and give lectures and things and I'd always check out the library and look at what they had on mythological beasties and, and collecting materials and started building big folders full of everything I could find about each of these different kinds of creatures. And Xeroxing was crude in those days, but available. We're talking about 1975, 6, 7 in that area. And, um, but we made, I made copies of all the images, you know, and would line them all up. And when we started off, we just assumed that the base of the unicorn story was probably rhinoceros. That's what everybody just assumed. But in point of fact, that doesn't come anywhere close at all, really. And we realized that there were images, these pictures and depictions of unicorns throughout history could be grouped and identified given the, an understanding of the art style of the place and period, because each different culture has different styles of drawing. So if you compare the way they depict horses or lions or something like that, you can kind of get a sense of how these things are done. And we found out that unicorns were depicted in many different cultures, but there were specific historical times and places you know, we're like once upon a time isn't nowhere. It's mm -hmm. actually a time and place yeah. where that story actually originated. And um, we also came to realize that these could be identified as different key species. You know, the oldest ones that we saw were taurine unicorns, bull unicorns, from the Harappan culture uh, of the Late Bronze Age. Uh, everything from the Minotaur, which is shown in vases as a single horn bull, to um, the common images on on. Uh, uh, on little tiles from Mohenjo-daro and Harappa in the Indus Valley, you know, and all of these things, and they all had unicorns, and you could depict, you could tell the difference between other animals because they would also show ordinary two-horned animals, but the unicorns were different. They weren't just the same animal with a single horn. They were more powerful and more muscular and buffer-looking, you know. It was like magnificent, you know, kind of things, you know, like like Dwayne Johnson as yeah. compared to some ordinary, you know, guy, yeah. you know. And um, Charles Atlas before and after. Exactly, Charles yeah. Atlas before and after. But when you take that into account, and then and then start finding stories, and there were accounts and stories with a lot of information and details at various times and places where these were given, and we started grouping them and realizing that these were real animals. They weren't just imaginary. They were actually real animals. And a book came out about that time called The Lore of the Unicorn by Aldell Shepard, in which he talked about um, accounts that were very realistic descriptions from Africa and from um, uh, the um, Ethiopia in particular and Nepal and other places like that. And then we got up to the famous unicorn tapestries uh, from the from the Renaissance period. And these are life-size mm -hmm. and they're very realistic, they're very well done. 
And as the story unfolded, we came to realize that the first unicorns were taurine. They were, they were developed from bulls, and they're often shown fighting lions, commonly. And then in the uh, beginning of the Golden Age of Greece, we had the uh, appearance of the Aryan unicorn, the ram unicorn, during the um, Age of Aries in Arisalinef. You know, and um, the other one is the age of Taurus, which is also interesting. You know, as we go through, and then um, we see antelopine unicorns appearing in ancient Egypt, and we see uh, chervine deer unicorns appearing in China, in India, and this this stuff started emerging, and we realized that the classical unicorns of the tapestries are goats. They have bearded shins. The only animals that have bearded shins are goats. That's a dead giveaway. Cloven hooves and the whole bit, and. Um, so we came to understand that these are real animals, but we were then it was like, well, how was that? You know, there was all this stuff, information, and then we came upon some research that had been done in the 1930s, in in Maine at the Maine Veterinary Research Station by a guy named Franklin Dove, who was a, a veterinarian who was interested in horn development, and was doing some studies on how horns actually develop and grow, and they were completely different from what everybody thought. You know, the, the common assumption was that horns grow out of the bone. They just, they just grow, but they don't, in fact. The horn's growth is stimulated by enzymes that are secreted by little glands that are in the skin of, of baby horned animals when they're born. And at a certain point within a day or so after birth, these, these um, nodes, these glands, they call horn buds, secrete these enzymes. And when the enzymes go down into the skull, they create the formation of this horn structure. Well, he said, well, what happens if you move these? You know, because the skin on the forehead is, is loose mm -hmm. at that point. Before it gets anchored by the horns, you know, you can shift it. So he shifted the positions, and he found that the horns would grow wherever they were shifted to. So we got this bright idea of bringing them together and uniting them right in the center, which happens to put it right over the place uh, that we call the third eye, where on an animal, six different bones all come together. The only place in the body that this happens. You've got the two frontal bones, the two superorbital bones, the two, and the suborbital bones all coming together at this one point, which is the place where originally in ancient creatures there was a, a light-sensitive organ that we now call the third eye, even though it's embedded deep within the skull. So he did that. He brought them together, and instead of, well, all the enzymes came down in a single thing and a single horn grew and he developed a he did this with an Ayrshire bull calf so he developed a taurine unicorn and there's pictures of it and stuff like that and he got really excited about the whole unicorn mythology and the lore and so he talked about it and he and his pictures of this animal and it's magnificent incredible powerful amazing creature and he said it was incredibly intelligent and charismatic and it became automatically the leader of the herd and the whole bit you know, and all the properties and qualities that that come down about unicorns, describing their character and stuff, were all exhibited by the actual animal. And we got to that point, and we said, "Wow, this would be a great chapter in the book." Or, hmm, how about if we actually tried this out and see if we could do this? So we talked to some friends um, because we were pretty excited about it, and one of our friends had some land in a hippie community that she had just bought in Northern California. She said, well, I need some caretakers on my land. Why don't you guys move there and raise unicorns and see what happens? So we did. It's a great invite. And it worked. And in the spring of 1980, the first unicorns were born. And we named them after Knights of the Round Table. Uh, Lancelot and Bedivere mm -hmm. were our first two. 
And that fall, we took them out into the world at the Renaissance Fair, and the publicity was huge. We were in every magazine and newspaper and TV show, and it was enormous. And, it, and we traveled over the next few years to every Renaissance Fair in North America. At one point, we had four different animals out there on the circuit. Wow. With, with me having one, Morning Glory, and our kids each having another one, you know? Yeah. Because we each had a kid from a previous marriage. So we had four animals out in four different places. We didn't even see each other for four months. And, um, and it was everywhere. And we, uh, this led us to getting a four-year exhibition contract with the Ringling Brothers Barn and Bailey Circus that made it a worldwide sensation. It became absolutely enormous. It was huge. And now, 30-some years later, the world has completely forgotten, as if it never happened. And now you ask people about unicorns, and it's a mythological thing. You have no concept. And it's incredible to think how, in that short a time, something that significant can vanish from people's awareness and consciousness. So there's a profound lesson there. And many, many other lessons. These were incredible, magical creatures. That they, uh, I'll, I'll never forget the first time that one of them, um, uh, who was, Lancelot was our main show animal. He was out there and stuff, and he got trained to do all kinds of performances and all that. And Benner was kind of stayed at home as our kind of pet, you know. Yeah. He was our hippie corn. And he got an injury on his leg. He hurt his leg doing some kind of a thing. And it was a winter time, and his coat was all shaggy and dirty and, and rainy and stuff like that. He wasn't looking his very best, you know, because these are show animals. You know? yeah. And um, we had to take him down to the vet, and that was the first time we did. And we took him down to the vet, and the vet was really impressed, and put him in a little stall. And we went back to see him the, the next day or so, and he said, I believe in unicorns. I believe, I've seen the magic. He said, people come in here with their injured animals or their sick animals, and they're depressed, and they're down, and they're bummed out. And people, you know, they go around and look in the other stalls to see what other animals are here. And people would come down and they'd look in a stall where there was a unicorn. And they would come out, whoa, there's a unicorn here. Oh my God, that's a real live unicorn. Wait, I tell my husband, all oh, my kids have got to see this. Can I come? And suddenly they'd be all excited and turned around completely. And their attitude would say, I've seen the magic of the unicorn. And see how it, it changes people and affects people. That's, that's so beautiful, and thank you so much for sharing that, that lovely history. And I think that thing at the end is something that happens with the wizard phenomenon yes, as well, exactly. where I watch it become somebody else's story, where they do yes. exactly what we just said. They're like, I can't wait to tell somebody else, and then it becomes part of their story. Exactly. And that's what it spreads and grows, and um, it's really cool. And not everyone has that reaction. There's plenty of people who are able to stay bizarrely focused oh, yeah. on the mundane. All but the people, people who wouldn't even see the unicorn. They'd walk right on by and not even notice. Yeah. It was amazing. You know? Yeah, you can hide in plain sight. Right. Nothing... Well, we'd put a pointy hat on him. Yeah. That's what we'd do. <laughs> to disguise him, we got these old party hats, you know, with a rubber band around it. We'd stick it over head when we were just walking through town when they were little, mm -hmm. small enough to do that. And people would just think it was a dog with a party hat. Yeah. It wouldn't even notice. You just walk right on by, you know. I mean, that's what I think about on the subway, where there's people where I'm like, you spent this whole subway ride and you didn't know there was a wizard on the train. How often does that happen to me? Like, how often am I on a train where, you know, that old friend from 15 years ago was sitting just on the other end of the car, but I'm lost in thought. I'm not aware of all the magic that's around us. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so to just kind of wrap up, I'd love to talk more about uh, this, this great awakening and what you think about wizards in the 21st century and um, what... Uh, we should be doing and what we should be thinking about and talking about as this continues to evolve and grow. Well, you know, the whole thing about wizardry and magic is um, uh, is about being conscious and aware, paying attention, really, you know. Um, 
in uh, Aldous Huxley's book, Island, he's got, they've got a bunch of trained minor birds that just go around shouting, attention, attention, you know, yeah. to people, just to bring you back to the moment. Because we go through life, and as you say, we often just don't pay attention. Synchronicities is one of those. That's why I use that word to start off with. Because uh, synchronicities are these things that should call us to, to notice, saying, whoa, that's, that's weird, now what, you know? And it could, gives you the call to pay attention. And if you get a whole bunch of these synchronicities, they're like, they're like the little roadside signs that tell you your mileage marker that tells you you're on the same road, you're on the right road. Yeah. You get those. Cavern of Wonders, 10 miles. Exactly. Cavern of Wonders, 5 miles. Right. Next left, the Cavern of Wonders. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Antelope Freeway, 1 mile. Antelope Freeway, 1 yeah. half mile. And so on it goes. Uh, Fireside Theater reference. But because um, you never get there in that one. It just keeps getting half of whatever the previous one was. It's <laughs> infinite regression. The oh, yeah. Zeno's Paradox. Zeno's Paradox, yeah. Right. So, but... Um, I think that uh, things like this give that thing where people are suddenly called to notice something, pay attention, and people open their eyes and they look around and say, wow, am I, what else am I not noticing or missing? And we need to do that. Um, if we're going to be having an awakening of cosmic consciousness or planetary consciousness or even personal consciousness, we have to wake up and smell the coffee and, and look around and pay attention. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a crucial part of it all. Um, we get into the definition of magic there, you know. Uh, Crowley famously defined magic as, as um, uh, actions that are to uh, cause changes in accordance with will, mm-hmm. that was basically about. But that doesn't really tell you anything. and It doesn't distinguish it from art or music, um, any intentional human activity. Yeah. It can be seen as magical, which is fine, and that's a perfectly good way of looking at it, but it doesn't distinguish the kind of thing that people really mean when they think about magic. And so we redefine magic as probability enhancement, and which I think is a lot more direct and gives you some sense. So what we are doing with this kind of work is we are shifting the probabilities in a specific direction. And that's what you do when you're actually working magic. You're moving the the little little things from one end of of the balance beam to the other end to shift the balance. And it's a constant effort of shifting the balance. And as we understand well, the most exciting thing that's happening in the whole field, of course, is the merging of quantum theory with magic theory. This is the, this is the big thing where all, all of us magical people are into, you know, is because the laws of quantum physics, as they're articulating, are the same as the laws of magic. Mm-hmm. So it's all about probability. Yeah. The whole field is all about probability. What are the odds? What are the odds? And this is what we say, what are the odds, you know? This is why it was always amusing when Mr. Spock on Star Trek would always say, well, I calculate the odds of this or something or other, you know, and then you just... And then, of course, and then, and then Kirk's like, yeah, we're going to do it anyways, and then, and then they do it. I think right. that's one of the things that you find with magic sometimes is how do we thread through the eye of the needle of exactly. this is the improbable thing exactly. that we need to happen. The Hitchhiker's and, Guide to the Galaxy, the infinite improbability generator. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That it'll, it'll get you to the other time... The other side of time and space, there just might be some weirdness that occurs along the way. Or the doctor's wibbly wobbly, timey wimey yep. kind of a thing, you know. Again, yeah. we have so many examples from our popular mythos, our popular stories that 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 have these little lessons that are built into them. And I mean, we're the descendants of this. We are the descendants of an unbroken string of incredible luck of every village that was facing a drought and managed to survive and keep going and didn't go extinct. Right. Of every lizard that was able to evade that predator in order to have some babies. Right. We are the descendants of so many lucky breaks. I mean, even something like the Cold War where you know the missiles were pointed at each other and we're in the reality where we didn't get bombed to smithereens. Right. 
And so I think that's the, the tightrope that we have to walk. Well, I often use as an example one of the great acts of magic um, occurred in 1966. In 1960, George Powell made the movie The Time Machine, mm -hmm. and he had the time traveler um, come into modern times, which was 1960, and you could see yeah. the date on the a little chronometer on the dashboard, you yeah. know, and he gets out and there's a nuclear war just erupting, you know, and the, and the earth opens and lava comes pouring down the street, you know, and he jumps back into the machine and fast forwards it to the distant future. But the time, the date that was on that odometer, the movie was made in 1960, the date that was on the chronometer on the dashboard was 1966, six years later. And in 1960, that seemed like a perfectly reasonable thing to put for the date of a global nuclear holocaust. And every story that was told about what follows that was was blank. You know, it was the mutants slugging it out with the radioactive ruins, you know. Yeah. And there was every episode of Twilight Zone and countless other stories and movies on the beach, many of them, just took it as a given yeah. that we were all going to be blown to shit. And there was no future past that. Mm -hmm. But in that year, something else happened. This, the date was given was in August of 1966. In September of 1966, the first episode of Star Trek premiered, and it gave a new vision of a future that carries us forward with that. And nobody, there hadn't been any vision of the future before that that had carried it forward. Yeah. And in doing that, somebody asked Gene Roddenberry one time what he was trying to do with this bizarre thing that mundane people didn't have any understanding of. But we did, of course. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm trying to create a vision of a future that will be so compelling, people will choose it over a global nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. And from that point, the, from Star Trek and NASA, they would put up on Friday evenings, they would put one of the big screens would be showing Star Trek mm -hmm. at the NASA monitoring stations, you know. Yeah. And now we are full of the technology that comes straight out of Star Trek. We carry around in our pocket devices that are more sophisticated than anything they had in the show. Yeah. You know, and... Um, this is an act of magic, of, of changing the future and shaping the world. And the best way to predict the future, you know, if you're a wizard, is to create it. Yep. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> exactly. Self-fulfilling yep. prophecy. Love it. Thank you so much, O'Bron. Um, to wrap up, I would just, one of the things that we do on the podcast is we try and come up with a little spell. So this is something that the listeners at home can do to make their life a little bit more magical or wizardry but we always try to find something small something that's a good first step not overwhelming people who have busy lives so I would love if you could offer up a, a spell that the listeners can do and that maybe you and I can commit to doing as well okay well I, I suppose that um, in light of what we've been talking about the most appropriate spell would probably be one to wake up you know to awaken ah uh, uh, <sighs> So let's see, let's take this thing. As the candle is lit, as the sun rises in the morning, as, as the fires of creation, may your eyes be opened, may you awaken, may you look around and see a new world, a new future of hope and dreams and fulfillment of all that is your heart's desire. So might it be. So might it be. Thank you, Oberon. All right. For more of Oberon's magic, visit OberonZell.com. And for more of the magic of This Podcast is a Ritual, you can listen to our opening ceremony, How to Create a Slightly Better Reality, to be initiated into this ritual. And if you'd like to become a true participant, you can offer a donation as low as $4.20 
at patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual, which will help our magic grow and spread so we can interview more wizards from around the world. Until next time, I'm Devin Person. I believe in you. Your magic is real. <laughs>